Hey, Phil Cly here with a quick note. What follows is not a full episode, but an excerpt of a Patreon episode. For a while now, Jake and I have been recording a series of shorter episodes on everything from Joseph Roth and Zadie Smith essays to Psalms from the Hebrew Bible to short stories by early 20th century modernists and so on. You can access all of those for a $2 pledge. This particular episode we're also unlocking, so if you want the whole thing for free, you can download that from our Patreon page. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned issuing commandments. Your guides for this journey are me, Phil Cly, as well as two exceptional guests, Sam Kimbriel, the director of the Philosophy and Society Initiative at the Aspen Institute, and Jennifer Shu, a Spanish-language literary translator. Today we're discussing The Enlightenment of Katsuo Nakamatsu, a novella by Agusso Hira Oshira, a Chilean author of Japanese descent, which was translated into English by Jennifer and just recently published. It's an entrancing work, and as you'll see, very relevant to many of the discussions we've had on Manifesto. It's also a hard novella to describe. You could say it's the story of a man in his late 50s descending into madness. Katsuo, the main character, has a mental break in a park, proceeds to behave increasingly erratically, is institutionalized, and dies. Or, alternately, you could take the title seriously and say that this book is not about madness at all, but its opposite. A man in his late 50s, disconnected from his community and his family history, working in an institution which doesn't care about him and is happy to discard him, has a moment in a park where the full weight of reality in all its beauty and brutality rushes in on him. Naturally, he can no longer live or act as he had before, and he begins a process of searching for his connections to his past, in particular to a group of Japanese men who came to Chile in 1918 and faced isolation and discrimination and violence, while also searching the rougher parts of the city for vitality and life and beauty amidst the squalor. Moreover, it's a beautiful novel, and the translation of Ashura's richly layered paragraphs is bewitching. So I hope you'll check it out, and I hope you enjoy this discussion. All right, so I am extremely excited about this. Jennifer, I've known you for a while, and uh, used to be a student of mine, uh, which is exciting. And you have this incredible book that you just translated, The Enlightenment of Katsuo Nakamatsu by Augusto Hira Oshiro. And the impetus for this was, Sam, you texted me and a bunch of other folks with an image of this book and you're like, this book is about everything that we've been arguing about recently. This is fascinating. I think my text, I think my text might've just been a picture of the book and then the word swoon underneath. (laughs) Um, And then there were some other things later, but yeah, yeah. I think that was the principal feel of it. (laughs) And so I, I was like, I know the translator. We need to, we need to get her on. We need to have a conversation about this. It is an incredible novella. It's about a hundred pages long. Uh, it is, it is a trip. I, I, Sam and I both just reread it for the second time, and I, I, I think your feeling was the same as mine. That it was just like, this is a fascinating, astounding, and really beautiful book. And um, yeah. I think maybe we could start off by just asking you, Jennifer, maybe to set it up. What is this book? How did you find it? And why did you say to yourself, this is the book that I'm going to translate into English? So what is this book? It, I think it's widely considered to be Augusto Higa Oshiro's, like masterpiece. 
Awuso unfortunately passed um, about a month before the book was published in the U.S. this year in April. But this book came from the sort of second half of his career. Um, the first half was very much affiliated with a group of writers sort of arrayed around the magazine Narración, often known as the Grupo Narración, very much. And his writing in that half of his career was very much concerned with the language of the street, like stories from the working class neighborhoods in the center, um, center of Lima, where he himself grew up, um, the son of Okinawan immigrants. But the second half, after he spent some time in Japan working um, during the 90s, which were very tumultuous for Peru, he started writing more Nikkei characters into his fiction. And this is, you know, from that second half, um, it has a Nikkei Japanese Peruvian protagonist, well, I came across Augusto for the first time in a book of scholarship by Ignacio Lopez Calvo. He's written a couple of books, one about proven writers of Chinese descent and one about proven writers of Japanese descent. Um, and so I did a Fulbright in Peru a few years back and knew, you know, going in that I wanted to buy a bunch of books because, you know, it's not always easy to find um, Spanish language proven books um, in the U.S., and I, so I read it for the first time in Peru and was really blown away by it and by like the headiness of the language. Can, can I read something that you, that's from your, you have a little epilogue where you talk about the process of yeah. translating this book. And I just want to read your own words back to you, which is weird, but I'm going to do it to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. One aspect of Augusto's work that remains unchanged between his two phases is his attention to the texture of language. In his introduction to a 2014 compendium of all his short fiction, Augusto writes, to make for more effective storytelling, a particular type of language was needed, language that was capable of imposing itself on the breath. Breathless is a word that often occurred to me when I was in the thick of translating the enlightenment of Katsuo Nakamatsu. Augusto's sentences in this novel are elliptical, often anaphoric, building to a swaying rhythm that slips by like silk and is likewise slippery to pin down in a new language. When I translate poetry, the sensation is something akin to bringing the page very close to my face so I can look extra hard at the words, and I often had that feeling when translating this novel, even though it is not technically poetry. Yes. Like that feeling of like, intense concentration and, and slight strain is one I often experience when translating this book. But yeah, like the attention to language. I, I mean, I, I read this book and was so struck by it. And it felt like a very delicious challenge to take on to. So that's I think that's why <laughs> I wanted to um, translate it. So the novel is basically, we start out with this character, Katsuo Nakamatsu. And he has this moment of madness, I guess. He is struck by the weight of consciousness. Right? Standing on a pebbled path in the Parque de la Exposición one August evening, Katsuo Nakamatsu looked on at the sakura blossoms. The branches of the small trees, which were scattered around the park and laden with rosy flowers, glowed in the leaden light, filling him with a private joy and, he believed, a secret spirituality. And then there's a sort of description of the scene and there was nothing to probe, no forehead wrinkles, no gesture of delight. Indeed, nothing foretold anything. Not the lowery sky, not the people walking in the gardens, not the humdrum cooing of the pigeons, not the frogs moaning in the cisterns. 
until the strange moment when Nakamatsu began to feel burdened, the weight of consciousness, unseeing affliction. In the eternity of the instant, in a manner of speaking, the green of the afternoon flickered out, the park's babbling was erased, as if the world had taken flight, the pebbled paths disappeared, no serene gardens or laughing families or murmuring young couples or ponds full of fish, the only thing in the air now was the sakura tree, its branches and luminous flowers. And in that fragment of afternoon, from that imperturbable, imperturbable beauty, Nakamatsu noticed, sprang a death drive, a vicious feeling, like the Sakura were transmitting extinction, a shattering destruction. And sorry for the long reading, but I felt like you, you got to get a sense of <laughs> the sweep of that. And you can also probably sense how it was difficult to translate because so much, you know, that language that imposed itself on the breath, so much is in the way that he's sort of getting at these layered and complex mental states. So there's that moment, and that's just the first two pages. And then he kind of goes into this descent. It reminded me of Sartre's Nausea in that it's a, Narr a main character who's struck by that kind of existential crisis. It, it's hard. It's a hard story to kind of, you know, just sort of tell you what it's about. But I don't know about you, Sam. I read this and I was just kind of on the edge of my seat the entire time. And it's it's yeah. it's really intense. What was it about this that made you feel like this this book is about everything that we've been talking about? Yeah. So I'll just say I'm actually so excited about this conversation and. It's because I feel like so many of the interactions and kind of intellectual discussions that I'm part of now are about things that one is against and sort of critique in various ways. And in this case, I think, and my hope at least, is that this is just a conversation about something that we all love and <laughs> have like sort of fallen in love with and can kind of gradually develop why that is and why it's intoxicating and i mean obviously like jennifer i think you um have this much much more deeply than either um of us, i feel for i do but there's clearly like a sense that this has like captivated all of us in a certain way first of all i do think that your language is incredibly well done i mean it has the kind of effect that you describe it having in the original language it entirely has in english as well like yeah. the capacity to like fall into something you know th there's a very close um match i think between form and content here where you're talking about someone becoming entranced and it is also simultaneously entrancing you as you're reading it and that is like re really really incredible incredibly fascinating experience i think the thing that phil and i were um, especially talking about and debating and then saying, oh, wait, we should stop debating this so that we can do it on the podcast, is whether this is a descent into something negative like madness or into something beautiful and positive like enlightenment. And that's obviously the title that it, it um, suggests that it's enlightenment. But, um, but how that works and what that's like, I think is incredibly delicate and subtle as it kind of unfolds. So th that's one thing that I think is really fascinating. Yeah, I think the question of madness is a really interesting one in this novel, right? Because 
whether even the narrator who we you know learn at some point is is a colleague who's not even very close friends with um, Katsuo um, believes that it's madness whether it, like Katsuo's friends old friends um, and community believe it's madness one, one, one of his friends gets a tarot card reading and he looks at the cards and seeing the cups the aces the queens had no recourse but to exclaim Shit, you're going insane. That's <laughs> a repeated insane. Juan Miyazaki confirmed insanity and death side by side. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and yet later, right? So mm -hmm. he's doing things that seem obviously insane. He's sort of oblivious to the world in some ways. He's dressing like Martin at dawn. He's, he's, yeah, I mean, um, maybe we should talk about the steps because it, it actually unfolds very, very gradually. So, I mean, you have this first part where he's just a like fairly normal person in his fifties in a secure job sitting in the middle of the city. And then this, like the passage that Phil read, like this kind of experience of abyss kind of opens up and falls before him. And that like really unsettles him. And then he's not quite sure what to do. Then um, he kind of stabilizes, then quickly loses his job or gets uh, unceremoniously um, sent into retirement and like with an envelope rather than like a party as it should be. And then gradually you have these, like, like I said, like very ambivalent passages. So he has like a couple of revelations of nature that seem to hit him very, very deeply. Then about halfway through, he starts having these uh, experiences of birdsong that happen. <laughs> Those amazing that's best like it, it, i mean so yeah just as katsuo had found tranquility he began hearing birdsong coming from the bedroom at first he ignored it as it was an indistinct noise and continued his labors without faltering but the birds clamoring grew louder a concert of chirps and trills emerging bountiful from a recessed grove with its greenery flowers shrubs and open fields intrigued nakamatsu paused paused his activity and got up to see what was happening in his bedroom he turned on the lights and found nothing but the wardrobe, his bed, and the folding screen, and all the same time was still in the air, immaterial and real, expanding onto the ceiling like a rain chorus or a mild waterfall. He didn't say a word, untroubled, he looked up at a spot in the air, focused his mind on the invisible stretch, and then he heard even more intensely the keening of the birds. And like this becomes like this like enrapturing thing for him. It happens repeatedly. He says every time he's left astonished by that sensation of an unusual beauty. And so like, and, and that sticks with him. It actually kind of enlivens him in some certain ways, but then it also really unsettles him because it keeps happening over and over for weeks and he's not sure what to do with his life. <laughs> and there's also yeah. this like natural imagery. He has this sort of intense sense of himself and his, his Japanese being, right? That, <laughs> at some point, Katsuo Nakamatsu discerned that even his gait, his mental and physical composition, his hesitation to identify with other people, his neurologic apathy, his pantheism, his penchant for nature were rooted in that old foundation, in a time and space that is his Japanese being. 
All the same, after taking a hard look at himself, he vacillated in indecision. Perhaps he felt this innate Japanese tropism from a distance, history and life's vicissitudes dissolving his paternal inheritance, leaving nothing but obscure tendencies and islets in his unconscious. In any case, beneath the bitter taste of doubt, the insuperable fact of existence was enough for Katsuo. He didn't need nationalism or the intrusion of customs. What he knew for certain was that he was living. Everything else bordered on the metaphysical. And there's that, like, <laughs> tension between these, like, this very I mean, existential seems to be the word uh, for it. And then he keeps tying it back to, to his past and his place and his culture. And we learn more and more about his past. You know, after we get that, we learn about his wife. Uh, Kiko, and there's this really beautiful passage, which I'm not going to, I mean, the thing about this is like, he writes in paragraphs and long paragraphs that build and build and build to these powerful things. We could probably just like read long passages <laughs> to each other <laughs> for hours, because it's the kind of book that it is. But there's this beautiful bit on his relationship with his wife, and how she sort of belonged to the world, to the world of Japanese Peruvians, right? And he was sort of caught in the middle. And then she dies of cancer. There was, I mean, the, and the bit about that, the stubborn Kiko, 39, victim of cancer, untouched, unconquered, frolicking without a care, beyond spite and family resentments, free of torture of sicknesses of the body. Kiko was happy, immensely blessed. Katsuo was sure of it. He simply placed his flowers and smiling, bowed his head, thinking... When death comes, it will have your eyes. Which well, I thought that was just like a really moving passage. And when she dies, his rootedness in that community disappears. And then, and then after the scene where he goes to the cemetery and lays flowers on his grave, on her grave, you know, he becomes more and more fixated with these Japanese men who came, and not his immediate family, not his father, but this guy who named Etsuko Unten, who refused to submit to the racism that they experienced and who refused to not walk with pride, including during World War II, when there was a war on and they were the enemy and they were hated and they weren't just hated by the like Peruvian whites, they were hated by the Chinese community there because of what Imperial Japan was doing. And, and this guy, Etsuko Unten, is basically a Japanese nationalist who is convinced that a ship from Imperial Japan is going to come to the port and that the, the Japanese can board it and then go fight in the war, right? And he continues waiting for this ship to arrive even into until 1956, right? And and so he's like writing a novel about this guy and he's thinking about Martina Don, who he eventually meets. And then he's also like going among lowlifes and prostitutes and young people and like lusting after the kind of flesh that he had when he was their age. Like not, it, it doesn't even seem like he wants to have a, a sexual encounter with anybody so much as like he wishes he had that vitality and it all kind of comes to a head when he sees 
this one shy young man with refined legs, perverse arms, pale lips, and a ring of inevitable teeth. The young man he had craved, longed for, dreamed of a thousand times, and in infinite premonitions on myriad squall rock nights. Immediately, Nakamatsu stripped off his jacket, shirt, pants, victorious shoes, and underwear, and was naked before the boy with the dark eyes and the tightly packed crowd. Then, weeping on his knees, crying out to heaven and hell, he sim simply whispered to himself, Beauty does exist. Beauty does exist. Katsuo Nakamatsu had achieved Kensho Satori, a vision of nature's essence. And then he's institutionalized. <laughs> right. And it was it's that it's that tension between those different things that he's getting pulled in that makes this so compelling to me. It's not I mean, it's not like such as nausea, which feels like a philosophical exercise, right? It's it's a novel about somebody who's having an experience that is really intense that seems like madness, but there's so much that's actually really profound that he's experiencing at the same time and that seems really important. And there are moments of intense beauty. I, I, don't, I don't know what to make it's of it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Right. I, I think that's exactly the experience that I had. And so, I mean, Jennifer, maybe you can talk a little bit about... First, yeah, I, I want to ask a couple of philosophical questions in, in a minute, but just talk a little bit more about like what captivated you with this and how, yeah, how did this kind of come in for you? And then what was the experience of having to live with it? Like tr translating takes, one thing about it is it takes a very long time and especially to translate this well, like within the intricacy with which you've done it, it's incredible. And so, so yeah, maybe just talk about what it's like to live with something like this for so long, because um, Phil and I are able to read this quickly in the middle of our other parts of our lives so you know how's this going over months yeah i was doing it alongside other things and it is quite a short book so you know when i started naively i was like oh it'll be you know not that hard you know i've translated short stories and you know and this is like several short stories in length of course i was wrong and i think it was also very important for this project to i you know have what i call fermentation time that period where you just like totally let it sit and don't look at it and you forget it a little bit and then come back with fresher eyes so you can catch those snags um, which was very important for this because the language was um, you know not straightforward and and um, I think especially the last chapter where everything's coming at you so quickly and like there's such heightened emotion that chapter was like very I was like very tense by the end of it and had to sort of like you know unwind every muscle i think what drew me to it though was the was that intensity like that passage you just read phil i think felt familiar to me from my own experiences but also not like there's a way i was just thinking about this it occurred to me now as you're reading that there's a way in which katsuo almost reaches a sense of identification and then turns away from it right like i think this also happens in that scene where he's like talking with his old family friends in their restaurant and then someone is shot in the street, right? And then there's like a huge crowd running and he clearly is moved by this young man, you know, who's lying, bleeding, but dead under a piece of newspaper. And then he says, but he wasn't of my blood. And he, you know, makes a sort of racist even dig about like, he probably wasn't even a citizen. Like he probably wasn't even, you know, fully documented in, in his status living in Lima. Um, and so there's a way in which he's like, there's there's a resolute turning away from like any sense of identification 
you see it even with his siblings, right? He talks about his siblings or the narrator talks about his siblings and how they're all entrepreneurs and business people, but Katsuo was never like them, right? And he also, you know, over the years, especially after Keiko died, moved away from his siblings, right? Um, so this, it, there was a way in which that, what I, you know, imagine to be a very intense aloneness, if not loneliness, was really interesting to me and also compelling to me. And I wanted to like dig more into it and, and see what it would be like to inhabit it more fully, I guess. Yeah. So I think that I experienced this as a book about loneliness, mm. actually. And um, that's, that's actually been a preoccupation of mine for um, most of my career. I wrote my PhD about like a kind of genealogy of loneliness and um, and I think that it's lone, it's about, so, so what I find so fascinating about this is that it is, it has parts that are kind of like the loneliness that I think I see in a lot of people I know and in modern society in general. So that's like the loneliness of getting fired from your job, um, in the way that he does, like there's a kind of cruelty and like total lack of loyalty he just walks in one day they hand him an envelope he's totally disoriented by it he has a couple colleagues that kind of tokenistically take him to a cafe and then essentially that's the end of this um you know 35 year career that he's had at the university um so that's like a kind of loneliness and he does seem adrift like without a family and he's kind of alienated from his siblings and uh is then in these like cityscapes where he seems kind of anonymous. So so that feels like modern loneliness in certain ways. But then what's fascinating is that it's playing with this line between self and other in a way that he's actually in important ways not lonely in the way that modern people are lonely. So a lot of the passages that we've already highlighted, it's funny, Phil, like you've highlighted almost all the same ones that I have in my notes. And um, they are like very entrancing in part because they feel so I've, d- I've done a lot of work on a few traditions that feel like the line between self and other in the world is very different than the way that modern people um especially in these kind of like large capitalist societies experience it so in um medieval persia for example both in stories and in philosophy you get these very serious ideas that um humans and like sort of super intelligences like angels are just completely inter interwoven with each other and there you can you cannot understand what it is to be human without this kind of like ref reference beyond um what we think is happening within our heads and this is taken as like just as normal as describing how tables are in the room you know and um there's a there's an aspect of this book that feels a lot like this i remember also an essay um, and then it became a book by a um, a London Times journalist who had been in Japan for a long time about, um, there's a passage in it where he talks about how in surveys, Japan comes out as one of the most secular uh, country countries in the world or, or non-religious. But then after the, um, the tsunami, they were utterly inundated by experiences and... Um, like inhabitings of ghosts and ancestors for like 
seven or eight years. It was just a completely understood phenomenon across the entire country. And the, you know, the, the essay initially, and then the book even more so illustrates this with like 75 stories, you know, of, of, of these things. And this book feels like that. It's like playing on this line that I think many of the people who are lonely in sort of contemporary, large um, North American and European cities, that's, there's like a very fixed understanding of who I am, where the line is, uh, what it means to be a self, where autonomy sits. And this book is playing against that in, in many, many ways that I find really, really fascinating. And so then, then I think that the real question is, is the destabilization of that line madness or illumination? Like that's, that's actually, I think what the, the question of this book is. And um, Phil, you should answer that question about which of those it is. Well, I, I don't think you should go into the um, seedier parts of the city in which you live, strip yourself naked before uh, a young man declare beauty exists, beauty exists. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's, that's helpful. Practical advice. I yeah. think that's, that's probably, yeah. But I, I think you're, you're right that there is something, the, the reason it's compelling, the reason it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like reading a descent into madness. And partly because you get the sense that he's, he's growing, he's ascending at the same time that he is unraveling, but some of those unravelings are helpful, right? And the, the, and the moments of genuine beauty, I think we're meant to take really seriously, right? Um, the other thing too, it's interesting you say that it's about loneliness for you because the thing that he is obsessed with is this, I mean, kind of troubling story in many ways from his past about, about this guy who embraced a sort of Japanese nationalism by proxy, right? In horrible circumstances. And he kind of details the, just the amount of suffering really that, that, this group of Japanese men went to, you also get a sense of how isolated they must have been, right? How they, you know, they were seen as, you know, they're coming, they're taking our jobs, they're foreigners, they were not welcome anywhere. And they might have had each other, right? But it's again, that sense of not not having a place, right? There's a, there's a line since you were, you brought up sort of religious sentiment where he's in a church and, um, he like murmurs some prayers to the Virgin Mary and thinks he was not resigned to fate. And those crucifixes, the pale gleam of those images and confessionals remained undisturbed, floating in tranquility and the illusion of hope as he asked himself what he had done with his life, how much at fault he was if he felt undone, unsociable, and reality itself continued to be a no man's land. And that question, I think, you know, you're talking about sort of relating this to loneliness in, in modern America or in sort of kind of modern capitalist societies more general. Generally, I mean, I think that is <clears throat> the poignant question, right? Like, how much at fault are we if we feel undone, unsociable, and if reality itself continues to be in no man's land? 
Yeah, I think this question of um, is it madness or illumination is, is an interesting one. That piece that you were just talking about, Phil,